Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. I think it's still September the 14th, 2022. It's been an endless day. I think the rest of the rest of my history will be September 14th, 2022. <laughs> We've been trying to figure out the nature of things today on the show, trying to figure out hidden histories. We did a um, conversation yesterday with Tom Hartman, the American radio personality, a hidden history of neoliberalism. He's an expert on hidden histories. He has a whole series. And today I talked with the St. Louis-based writer, Sarah Kenzia, she has a new book out, They Knew How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. She believes America is, and to use her language, a ghost story. And historians are always trying to see through ghost stories, try to figure out reality, try to understand the world as it really is. It's a struggle. It reminds me of the great book by uh, the Italian writer Italo Calvino, Invisible Cities. If cities or if history is indeed invisible how do we see it how do we see through it my guests today have a very original way <laughs> of understanding the world they're the co-authors of a book called a history of the world through body parts it's a way of seeing through invisible cities uh, they're a brother and sister combination kathy and ross patras um, and i'm particularly intrigued to think of a history of the world through body parts in the context of the big story of this week and perhaps any week, uh, the death of Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth of England. Uh, at the moment, uh, Britain is mourning. The lines are stretching for miles as Elizabeth lies in state. People are looking at her body and she will be eventually buried at Windsor Castle. So, Kathy. Petrus, to begin with you, easy question, Kathy, to start. Uh, joining okay. us from Spain, lucky lady. Um, <laughs> in the future, when a history of the world through body parts comes out in the second edition, I and like that we'll have uh, another chapter on Queen Elizabeth II. What uh, body part of QE2 would you include, do you think? What would reveal? our age and yeah. queen elizabeth herself that's a that's actually a really good question it's a very difficult one i'm immediately and this is going to be a very it, it's going to sound glib i i picture her her hand i always picture the handbag you know how she always had the handbag like that the big mm. queen handbag or the wave to me and 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 they're very small but to me in a funny way it, it encapsulates that that I don't know that approach to the public where you're 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 being what's the word I'm looking for you're being Take you're control. being familiar without what Ross took. Take control, I think she had. Yeah. Okay. I like that. I was thinking also. Yeah, because it's that wave that that always gets me. My hand looks very strange in this picture, but that always got me as a kid. I remember you mean, that she stands on the balcony and she's waving her hand at her subjects. Is that? Yeah, exactly. And it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's on one hand, no pun intended, um, a, 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 an approach to the people, but it's also a stand back. Like Ross said, it's a, it's a very controlled, very tight thing. 
I like that. Yeah. I like that. Hank, uh, Kathy, she was a, for better or worse, even if she was beloved, she was a tight and controlling character, I think, both within her family and, and amongst the nation. Let's um, introduce your co-author, also happens to be your older brother, although, mm-hmm. of course, he looks younger than you. I'm just... Hey, hey, watch us. We're watching the Andrew. That, that was a low blow, Kathy. Yeah, it was. <laughs> a good blow, so, Ross, tell me a little bit more about this book. Are you treating a history of the world through body parts in symbolic terms. We're going to talk about a lot of the characters in the book, everyone from uh, Zeus's penis to Cleopatra's nose to Martin Luther to George Washington. What is the point of this book? Is it serious? Is it it comic? Is it a a serious kind of archaeological romp through history? It, I like the archaeological romp through history. Uh, the book, basically, we in the opening, we talk about Cleopatra's nose, you know, Pascal's famous dictum about Cleopatra's nose. Had it been, lo- had it been uh, smaller, history would have changed. But I do think that um, both of us have had a feeling that the body is actually ignored in history. We tend to look at history as if the actors on it are disembodied spirits, boldly going places without having aches and pains. And sometimes those aches and pains or bodily afflictions definitely affect history. And I do think one thing, Kathy and I both had a, had parents, we both lived in, uh, we shared the parents, as a matter of fact, with our brother and sister. <laughs> yeah, we, did. we lived we in Egypt as children. And um, our father was with agency, for, uh, was developing Egyptian agriculture. And we would go a lot of times, and this is the days before the tombs and all that were shut off. And literally we'd go in the desert and there'd be, hundreds of bones of generations upon generations past we'd be walking on them and i think we got a definite feel of the fragility of life and the fact that there are bones in 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 our life i mean they're they're the body is part of us and i think that that body needed to be talked about that's why we wrote the book it's a fascinating book um kathy we've done some stuff on bodies we've done everything on this show uh (laughs) <laughs> we we had a doctor, Jonathan Reisman, on the secrets of the human body. He's a doctor, so his book was called, or is called, it's a good book, uh, The Unseen Body, A Doctor's Journey Through the Hidden Wonders of Human Anatomy. You're not anatomists, though, Kathy. You're not in the business of studying the body. You're seeing the body in symbolic terms, in terms of oh. making sense of our history, right? Absolutely, yeah. No, we're not scientists. I mean, we 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 like science. We, we want to, you know, learn more and, you know, and so forth. Absolutely not. No, this is, it, it's, it's um, a head thing. It's, it's an approach. Like Roy said, it's, it's our whole point was looking at the body as, or looking at history, excuse me. I'm, I'm, I'm phrasing it badly. I'm phrasing it wrongly. Um, I, I was never talking about this before we talked to you actually tonight, we're talking about like, what are we going to talk about with Andrew? And the one thing that I was saying to Ross is I remember as a kid, I hate, I did not like history, qua history. I loved historical fiction. And the reason I liked historical fiction was because it was things about what they wore. They got up and I was like, I am this little girl that lived in uh, revolutionary France or whatever. And and we forget, as Ross said, that the, the, we make history so encapsulated. So um, what's the word I'm looking for? so much this like frozen thing and we forget that they're humans that are doing this it's something that we didn't put in the book but um we were talking the other day about napoleon and the fact that he had piles or hemorrhoids 
And did that influence his, um, mm. the whole Waterloo thing? No one knows, obviously. But I mean, if you've got hemorrhoids, you're not going to sit well on a horse. You're going to wait and you hope that they feel a little better and blah, blah, blah. And I, these little things, not only really, as Ross said, possibly made a huge difference, but they also, I think, make history much more immediate because we're all in our bodies. You know, I mean, mm. I sound very trite. Well, Napoleon didn't make it into the book. I, I assume he's on the reserve team, is he? Yes, <laughs> he's 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 a junior varsity, you know. <laughs> you know, as uh, you know, I'm English, as we discussed earlier, you know what English people they only think in uh, sexual terms. So, I expected everybody, every piece of anatomy in this book, in a Freudian sense, to be phallic in some way. And of course, you begin with the biggest phallic symbol of them all, Zeus's penis. Where, why did you choose to begin with Zeus and particularly his penis? Well, Maybe uh, Ross, you're the best person to ask. <laughs> that this. one I can actually speak from personal experience. Um, we were As kids, parents, we were Greek in background. Our you parents seen it? No, no. But our parents took us to Greece as as children, and we went. You're blaming everything on your parents. Oh, we are. I mean, very (laughs) well. He is. I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) But I recall as a child, it really shocked me because I looked at um, they had Poseidon uh, in the the National Museum and Zeus, and the peanut the penises were very small. And then count, contra well, that. I mean, I look, you maybe, is that just because of you, Ross? Or? <laughs> <laughs> Ross is a Greek stallion, okay? Oh my God. We've seen, we saw Ross's wife earlier. Maybe she should come back on. <laughs> well, I think she can assure you the opposite is the case. But whatever. Okay. Well, we won't. Ross defensively quickly. No, but it was really interesting because the idea of the Greek, the Greeks had, but at the same time we saw those small penises, I would, I asked my mother, I remember, because they were large uh, pan penises, which were enormous. And I thought there's something really odd here. And I, you know, you look down, you know, the famous yeah. case. But the Greeks had the idea of sophrosuni, which is the idea of moderation, basically. And a gentleman would have in public a small penis. And then at, you know, symposia, et cetera, with drinking parties, the penis would obviously get larger. But there was definitely the ideal of a small penis, which absolutely fascinated us. Because that's certainly not the ideal, you know, in, in the States right now, a la penis enlarging. You would not have a penis enlarging club. <laughs> right. I mean, right. even uh, Tr- Trump made a public statement suggesting that he was not as small as some people suggested. <laughs> ah, see, the ancient Greeks would not have liked him then. No. I, <laughs> uh, Kathy, I don't think either, the ancient Greeks would have liked uh, Donald Trump. For a lot of different things but yes. um so let's let, let's stop talking about penises uh kathy and let's talk about noses which are in some ways i su- suppose similar let's go to cleopatra's nose which is one of my favorite chapters in the book what do you make of of the significance of her nose as you say pascal suggested all of history was determined by the shape of her nose do you agree with pascal well I do and I don't. I mean, I, I, that was the genesis, as Ross said, of the book. So I, I, I obviously, and also, I have to also add, um, Ross and I are Greek in backgrounds. And years ago, I was in Seattle and there was an exhibit and it was uh, Philadelphia. Was it Philadelphia second, Ross? Do you remember? But a Ptolemy and, and Ross looked just oh, like yeah. him. So there's definitely a Ptolemaic thing going on in our family. So <laughs> I feel very strongly about Cleopatra. 
yes, I think that 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 to some degree Pascal was right, and I think that's where you see the um, the whole the whole notion of notion notion. No, there's no pun there. Um, of 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 political what's the one look from political manipulation. I mean, mm. Cleopatra's nose was larger in Roman depictions, smaller in Egyptian. And it's because Romans had larger noses on the whole. Egyptians had smaller. So you see how it, it's almost like an, an ancient, you see ancient, uh, um, Ross, help me here. Oh, um, I, I, it's the intersection of body part with history. Thank and, you. And intersection of body part with, with ideal. And Cleopatra was clearly a political actress or actor nowadays, you would say. And she her, she manipulated her nose as per the requirements of her political uh, career. She didn't succeed ultimately. You know, Augustus had her kill or she committed suicide. But can I throw something else in here? Or is that violent? Yeah, and I was just thinking maybe the, 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 the Romans should have had a term, the Streisland factor. The Americans had that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, go on, throw it in, Ross. Yeah, okay, I'm curious. I was going to throw in something else, though. I mean, the key thing which really fascinated us with history and body parts are, are the it's a lot of times it's the reaction of the spirit or the mind with the body part. At one mm. point, we have K uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, and um, he had a withered arm, apparently brought about. Sorry to our entire our per uh, <laughs> brought about by a, a very bad British obstetrician who apparently bungled the uh, birth. Yeah, well, we probably okay, I want to interject, though, Ross. You've got to say it was part of it was the times because he wasn't it that he couldn't like literally like be in her vagina or whatever. He had well, to like under they, they had to do or... the, they had to do the uh, they had to do the birth underneath her skirts. Yeah, you could never heaven forbid you know show those body parts to the public mm. or to the people. But the point is that Kaiser Wilhelm had a withered arm. He apparently blamed the British, and there is some thought, and I think it's fairly reasonable, that um, part of that uh, was one of the reasons for his antipathy for the British and then in turn that the war. Yet at the same time, a couple of years later, you have Lord Halifax um, born who had a uh, missing hand and a very, again, a withered arm. And he seems to have you know gone, gotten along quite swimmingly. So it's the reaction of the individual with that body part. It gets, as usual with humanity, everything gets more and more complex. Yeah, and it's interesting. One of the things that I like about your book is you deal with so many different characters, some, some of whom the body seems or should have been immaterial. Luther, for example, a German compatriot of Kaiser William, <laughs> uh, and his notion of Lutherism, of course, fought the idea of even the significance or meaning of the body. D did you find in your study of religious characters and of religious periods that the body was more or less important in religious times? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I would say, I, I would say neither more nor less. I would say the same. What, what about you, Ross? I'm curious. Cause I would say, I, I mean, don't... first of all, you have, you have the Christian tradition of bodily and it's also we, the mistake we made with early Roman histories. We presume it's just Christians, but Samachus, etc., were very much uh, ascetics in their own way. So you have like a mm. strong sort yeah. of asceticism and a, a getting away from the body. And mm. in Egypt, where we were there, you had, you know, Anthony, and a denial. And, and obviously, in terms of afterlife and the significance, you never, you don't have any of the pharaohs. I mean, even though with your with your Egyptian background, I'm surprised you didn't include a, a pharaoh in the book. We did Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut. 
Oh, okay. Whoops, so I missed that one. So tell me about him or her, uh, her <laughs> and her significance. Was she interned in a pyramid? Uh, no, the pyramids no. came actually earlier. By the by the eight, it's uh, by the eighteenth, the seventeenth, eighteenth dynasty. You were talking about uh, tombs underground. The problem with the pyramids, and if you ever go to Egypt, they're kind of big, and it's yeah. sort of obvious there's a king under a queen underneath, so you can basically dig and right. tunnel. Okay, and yeah, I have been. So um, let's go back to your sister, Kathy. Uh, tell me about this Egyptian queen and her significance. Well, we had Hatshepsut in because she wore the beard, the royal beard. Oh, and right, I, yeah. Mm -hmm. So she was in effect, and, and she initially was depicted as a woman. And over time, you see her the blurring of uh, the the renditions of her in sculpture, wall paintings, etc., as uh, more and more masculine to be more pharaonic, if you will. And um, she was. It, it, we go back to the beard as the the, the symbol of the royal and god my brain is stopping here i'm so, so sorry wine I'm you've really been tired <laughs> it's, like, it's 11 it's almost 12 o'clock here i'm very tired so so we have her in there as the, as the strapping on of the beard was in effect it's almost like a cod piece for a woman if you will or or a uh, a strap on dildo. So what did that? So that tells us, Kathy, about the the Greek world, other the Egyptian world she was from. That that they're clearly with gendered roles. Um, this was yes, not and the interesting the interesting with her is like she even the the um, texts about her stayed female, feminine in terms of things, but the the, the representation, the physical representation was was male. So. She was also one of the first pharaohs. She was one of the first female pharaohs. What she was, who was, yeah, who had the, what was the one before her? I forget now her name, Nye something. Remember, no, I, I'm no. blank. Hatshepsut would actually be probably the first, like, bonafide no, pharaoh. But are the there, people... yeah, sorry, are there any truths? I mean, in these all these different studies with the fluidity, the plasticity of gender, of sexuality, of faces, of bodies. What singular truths are there in the book, either of you? Okay, pardon me, I don't I quite understand the question. I don't understand the question. What are the, given that each of your chapters seem to sort of reveal different ways of treating the body, whether it's sort of stressing mm -hmm. masculinity or the nose mm -hmm. or the penis or whatever, mm -hmm. Uh, what are the truths you found in, in, in the book? Are there singular truths that That's apply to each, each character and each period you look at? That's interesting. I, I think that we found several things. First of all, in terms of gender, I, I think that, I mean, the Egyptians actually, in, in terms of gender, were far more liberal than most ancient societies. Even though we do have Hatshepsut, donning a beard we we do find in egypt far more than in many other uh western or uh, uh mediterranean societies a, a greater equality of women but in terms of truths i i think we find it's almost like a sine wave there are people mm. manipulate their bodies they change them in various ways i think um I would have argued 20 years ago that we're seeing basically a natural body and now we have you know we have uh tattoos all over the place so we're going back, in effect, to prehistoric times when we're finding pet tattoos on people. 
So I don't, I think we're human. And I think oddly enough, the truth that I feel, and I don't know if Kathy would agree with me, is I'm that curious. we're resolutely human and we're not changing too much. We're manipulating. I totally, okay. I totally agree with you, Ross. I totally, that to me is the, the resounding truth of this. I mean, we go back to, you had brought up Andrew Martin Luther. I mean, and it's the whole thing. It's debate, whether it was really on the toilet or not, but he was sitting on the toilet, they think possibly, and came up with these thoughts about God. And, and to me that, that is, I think one of the most basic things Like you're sitting there and pooping <laughs> and you're thinking, you know, what I mean? I'm sorry to be blunt. I mean, you know, yeah. and I think for me, that's the bottom line of the book. It's like, we're, whether we're Neanderthals or, or Cro-Magnons, whatever, or now we're, we're humans, we're in this, we're locked in this meat cage and that defines us regardless of, um, the times don't you think or resolutely human bodies in human yeah yes. and we can't body escape it. we're in here we're in this you know how did you decide i mean you've written a number of books together you're a um oh god team. <laughs> quite, quite an achievement i mean one one is in canada one's in spain you certainly need a bit of space between you <laughs> how did, in, in all seriousness how did you determine who got in and who didn't i mean it seems like you're, you know, you've got some prehistorics. You've got one character, uh, a Maya queen. Fascinating narrative on that one, Lady Jacques. Um, yes. How did you determine which which characters got in and which didn't? I could say it was, it was scientifically determined. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. We had a like a very strict. It, it was far more capricious. We've both been to Mexico and to Mayan ruins. So that we felt like we had, I mean, the one danger with writing a book is always how close can you get to the subject? So in many right. cases, like Egypt, the Mayans, obviously England, we had a certain, and Greece, we had connections to it. So it was easy. I, I, Other was, cases, Kath? I'm cutting you off. I'm sorry. Ross. Sure, cut off. <laughs> I was going to say, it was really, though, I thought more like what, what intrigued us. I mean, because yeah. I would start like dicking around and go like, "Ooh, this is a good yeah. one," and I go like, "Oh, that's not a good one." You know, I mean, honestly. Do you regret me, any was... any that got in or didn't get in? Are there some that shouldn't be in there? I think everything that's in there is good. I I would I regret some that aren't in there. I, yeah, I really would have loved to do Napoleon's piles. I'm sorry. I'm, yeah. I'm very into hemorrhoids. Well, you got some. Later. I mean, you're both uh, sort of. You're born in well, you're. You weren't necessarily born in America. You lived in America. You grew up in America. Um, but now, uh, Ross, you're in Canada. And Kathy, you're in Spain. You've got a lot of Americans in here. You've got George Washington, for example. Harriet Tubman. Another, uh, sorry, that's not Washington. That's Lenin. <laughs> God, he's changed. That was a, that was a bit of an error. Uh, <laughs> Lenin. Uh, not Lenin. You've got Washington, Harriet Tubman. You've got... Um, Benedict Arnold. Uh, yeah, Benedict Arnold. I mean, how did you determine which Americans got in? Well, those well, I think as growing stories. up as American, they're iconic Americans. Benedict Arnold, yeah. George Washington, you can't avoid them being an American. Well, Are Benedict Arnold, I mean, you could have had Jefferson or what? Uh, or oh, but Franklin. Benedict Arnold, but it's, we lived, I mean, Benedict Arnold was like near us and it was his leg. I mean, okay, so like, tell me about Benedict Arnold, the chapter on him. What's What body part's interesting about him? His leg. I don't know why it became that short, but 
Yeah, because it was actually near us when we grew up in New Jersey. What, the leg? There's a, uh, <laughs> not the leg well, the monument to it. Right. That's the, yeah, and it was, it was as a kid, as an American kid, you always grew up with, oh, oh, Benedict Arnold. But he was not a bad guy up until that point, until, up the traitor part. Mm. <laughs> and you've got some revolutionaries in as well. You've got, I clicked on Lenin earlier by mistake, but Lenin is a revolutionary, of course, as well as Marat, Jean, uh, Jean-Paul Marat, the French revolutionary. Um, mm-hmm. What is it about revolutionaries and bodies that are interesting? I Particularly Lenin, who was famously ascetic, gave up chess to focus on the revolution when he lived in Zurich. That's a really interesting question. It's always hard to go you know, correlation versus causation. But that's an interesting question. And I, I've often wondered, we both have talked about this, Kathy and I, do like bodily uh, disabilities impel one towards either, I mean, in Byron's case, towards great literature or in revolutionary cases. Right, Byron gets in as well, who in my mind is most interesting because he was the um, the father of the woman who invented uh, computer software. Ada we just talking about right. that today. Yes. <laughs> but sorry, go on, Ross, I interrupted you. Oh, no, 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 I, but we're, we were wondering, actually, does that impel one toward, does that, go, Byron called his disability a goad. And it goaded him into producing, you know, what he viewed and what we all view as great literature. Did in another sense, some of these things goad people into, in some bodily disabilities, goad people into into revolution, into revolutionary well, activities, very possibly. Cromwell I, I, as well, I guess you include. I'm sorry? Uh, Cromwell is also in the book, uh, another oh, yeah. revolutionary. Yeah. But I was going to say, in general, though, and we go back to the notion of, of how a body... Uh, impels one in some way or another of course I, I don't you think if you have like either a disability or or a, or or a different ability yeah, yeah. I mean, it, of, of, of course it's a superpower it's an, right in effect yeah i mean of course i think it, it makes you do things and i think that's why you do find when you dig like ross and i did that often behind the scenes is some sort of a bodily impetus, if you will. Mm-hmm. Did you find uh, either of you the, I mean, for better or worse in America, as you know, there's an obsession now with skin color. There was always mm-hmm. an obsession, but it was never spoken out loud and it was just repressed black people. Now, of course, it's a, it's a more complicated political question. Uh, but in your chapter on Harriet Tubman, one of the great, heroic figures in American history. What did that tell you about skin color and the body and history? Well, Hmm. the interesting thing about, for example, 1619, when the first people came over who were indent, they were basically indentured. And then the indentured uh, servants who were light skinned colored, i.e. British or Irish, stayed indentured servants. The gradually the, the darker skinned Africans, um, were transformed from endangered servants into enslaved individuals. So obviously the idea of dark skin, um, it was very, very, very prevalent in America as being a a negative sort of thing. You're inferior or whatever. Although one interesting caveat to that was during the book, we found, um, I can't remember where now, but it was a quotation from a, I think it was a Greek author talking about how it was obvious that Ethiopians being closer to the sun and, proof of that was their darker skin were much more intelligent because their minds worked more quickly 
than those dumb, stupid slaves from uh, Germany. And I thought that was an interesting, uh, different <laughs> look. Fascinating. Skin color. Yeah. It's a reversal. Kathy, let's talk about, you. we, we, we talked about the, uh, the Egyptian princess who dressed mm. up with a beard to perhaps disguise her female quality. You have a number of uh, perhaps feminist icons in the book. Anne Boleyn, for example, mm. who seemed to have stood up to Henry VIII, was executed by uh, Henry VIII. You also have a, a chapter on Frida Kahlo, the great Mexican feminist uh, author, uh, artist. Um, women in the body, Kathy. Tell us a little bit about that, especially modern women. That's a good question. Um, I'm going to actually not do a modern woman. I want to go back to, uh, I don't even know how to pronounce her name correctly, uh, Ba Tru, uh, the, the Vietnamese heroine who was said to have had three foot long breasts, which sounds, oh, yeah. yeah. No, she was my favorite actually uh, on a feminist angle because her breasts were not, she's, she obviously did not probably have three foot long breasts. Um, I'm, I'm assuming not, but um, <laughs> they said that she would tie them behind her neck to battle or throw them over her shoulders or whatever. And they were really revolutionary breasts because at the time, you had um, a, a culture, the Chinese culture was oppressive against women, very classist, and having large breasts was very looked down upon. It was very peasanty. So a story like that to me, whether it was true or not, and I assume it was not, is, is amazing because you go back to the body as a revolutionary angle. These big breasts, these huge breasts, these breasts that could not be, were revolutionary in the fact that you're saying a woman can be a heroine and she can be from a lower class and, and, and she can be overtly female. And that to me was amazing to see. And she's still revered in Vietnam for that reason, that she spoke to a lower level that was um, being so trod upon. Ross, what about brain size? Um, you have a chapter on the brainiest man perhaps who ever lived, uh, Albert Einstein. Uh, did he have a particularly large brain? There's a lot of talk about that. I think that one, I think, basically talks less to the si idea of brain size as being indicative of intelligence and more uh, to our Western sense that a big brain, and we're talking about Zeus before and other parts <laughs> as well, mm. big is better. I don't really think, I, I think that there was a, a big mystery and Einstein's brain was dissected and examined, et cetera. And there was some thought that the, uh, it was a little bit larger, but then again, Neanderthal uh, humans had larger brains as well. And then we've just discovered recently, they were wondering why crows are so smart with tiny brains. And apparently uh, connections between uh, neurons are increased when you have heat and crows have higher body temperatures. So I think we probably should have examined uh, his internal was he at like 102 or something like that in terms of his? Um, I'm his, sorry, uh, I, internal body. I gotta, I gotta interject because this is the one I had written. One of the ones, right. um, a, a study actually found that Einstein Einstein's brain was smaller than average. Oh really? Okay, I, I didn't read <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, it was actually. Well. Okay. but parts of his brain, 
parts of his brain were larger than average and more highly developed. And that was the key. It's like, we go back to the size doesn't mean anything. Yeah, yeah. no, because it's like smaller. This part was smaller, but this part was not smaller. So, But, I, but it's funny. I still really question all of that. I, to me, it seems so reductionist. I mean, we're just like oh, saying big, big is better. I, I think that probably is going to prove be proven not particularly significant in my gut feel. Well, they found actually though that one part that I can't pronounce it. I'm I'm, I'm going to be a dunce here. The, oh, the corpus callosum or something? No, peri peri parietal lobes. Oh yeah, parietal. The parietal lobes were larger than average. They and that's where the connections could be made. And that's what made mm -hmm. his brain. They thought special yeah well let's end on the frailty of the body uh, in covid times of course we're particularly aware of that i'm not sure uh, if you put it in because of covid but you have a chapter on typhoid mary Ooh. Uh, mary mallon who doesn't normally come up in these kind of books why'd you put that in and what does that teach us about the body in the age of the pandemic probably you know we're over covid touch wood but there's probably another pandemic, unfortunately, on the horizon. Uh, I'll start with that. Um, I think it teaches us two things. First of all, I was one area where I was really surprised was that um, back in Mary in typhoid, quote, typhoid Mary's time, they understood and knew that there were literally thousands of people walking around with asymptomatic um, diseases, diphtheria, uh, typhus, typhoid, etc., mm. and they felt they had to deal with it. Typhoid Mary herself was the first basic incidence of scientific contact tracing. Let's look and see how she got uh, infected and how do we basically trace those who she's infecting. But I think what really frightened us in that one was the intractable problem. And we're again, we go back to the fortunate or unfortunate case that we're all human and we have bodies that are that are vulnerable. And you cannot really ultimately solve that problem. I mean, we could the do there were valiant efforts, but it didn't, nothing really completely worked. I'm all in favor of vaccination. I'm all in favor. We both are all in favor of all of that, but you're never going to really win. I don't think. The funny thing though, also, I want to add when, when we wrote the book was we both thought contact tracing was going to be the thing, you know, contact tracing with capital C, capital T. And it's kind of faded out. You don't hear about that anymore. And mm -hmm. at the time, you go back to, you see the, the again, we go back to the body and, 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 and such forth. At the time, it seemed like that was going to be the, the growing, everybody's going to be tracked, everybody's going to do that. And it's no longer a thing at all. Well, let's end with uh, where we began with QE2, uh, burial. I think it's going to be next Monday. Um, what is writing of the book and thinking about all this stuff? What has it taught us about funerals and burial and laying bodies to rest? What are the appropriate and inappropriate ways of doing it? Hmm. I would say have good embalmers. At one point, we like in the Godfather. You remember that scene in the Godfather? Yes. Oh, yeah. I do. <laughs> yes. It's always good to have a, an embalmer. Um, in your pay, so to speak. <laughs> yes. If your son ever gets uh, shot many, Smashed many times. Up yeah. Gold booth. Well, in the book, because we have Lincoln's funeral, and Lincoln was uh, late in state, but the embalming, that was the beginning of, quote, scientific embalming, but they didn't do a very good job. And towards the end, people would come into the train to look at his body, and towards the end, the body started decaying quite rapidly. And they had to put perfumes and all sorts of things just to make sure people didn't smell 
the horrors of the presidential decay. And then, of course, we have Lenin lying yes. in state and, and the terror of anyone who was involved in keeping the body looking pure, you know. Yeah, I remember once uh, in the in the 19, probably in about 1974, I visited the Lenin Mausoleum in... in oh, you did? did? Oh, And wow. I walked in, I was a 14-year-old English schoolboy, and so I wasn't, and I haven't changed much, but I, I was very disrespectful, <laughs> and I kept my hands in my pockets, and I remember being quite literally hit by a, one of the guards, one of the Soviet guards there, to have my hands taken out of my pockets, so... We need to show respect to bodies, dead or otherwise, right? Oh, wow. That's very cool. But yeah, yes, we do. Respect is always... Well, you guys have done a great job. You, The ultimate respect for a body. You've written uh, all of our bodies. You've written a history of the world through body parts. Congratulations. Uh, Kathy and Ross Patricia. Wonderful book. Wonderful conversation. I'm going to let you go, Kathy. It's late in Spain. What it other, is. <laughs> each of you can end with a suggestion for our viewers and listeners on another book that they might enjoy, in addition to your new book, History of the World Through Body Parts. Hmm. Well, I like, go, Ross. No, I was going to say, I'm going to have like an old book. I've just been rereading, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which has mm. nothing to do with body parts, but is wonderful. So I always recommend that. That's a good one. And Ross? I've got a, a fabulous book, uh, A Brief History of Infinity by mm. um, Brian Clegg. I just loved it. It's a really, it's a, it's a, a word, it walks you through via words, which I really appreciated. Ooh. Mathematics of Infinity. It's a wonderful book. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much. We're done now.